Good morning. This is 5 at 8. Today's Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. And here is the day's top news. Your hosts are Linda Carlisle and Mark Overman. In this episode, we will talk about millions of U.S. military emails mistakenly sent to Mali, Evergrande's massive losses, Russia's air attacks on Ukraine, Turkish President Erdogan's Gulf tour, and the challenges of weak wage growth in Japan. Story number one. Millions of U.S. military emails have been mistakenly sent to Mali, a Russian ally due to a typing error, as reported by the BBC. The emails, intended for the U.S. military's MIL domain, have been sent to Mali's ML domain for years. Some of the emails contain sensitive information such as passwords, medical records, and itineraries of top officers. The issue was identified over 10 years ago by a Dutch internet entrepreneur who manages Mali's country domain. Although none of the emails were marked as classified, they included medical data, maps of U.S. military facilities, financial records, and planning documents for official trips. The Pentagon has taken steps to address the issue, and the Internet Entrepreneur has raised concerns about the potential exploitation of the misdirected emails. This whole situation, Linda, it's like something straight out of a spy novel, don't you think? A simple typo causing such a massive snafu. But it's not just a quirky headline. It underscores something far more serious. We're talking about millions of emails, some containing sensitive information, ending up in the wrong hands due to a minor typing error. It's a stark reminder that human error can pose as much of a risk to our cybersecurity as any sophisticated hacking attempt. It seems almost surreal. And while these emails were not classified, as you said, they did contain sensitive information. Now imagine if these emails ended up with someone with malicious intent, not just a case of wrong address. In the wrong hands, even seemingly benign information can be pieced together and potentially used against the U.S. military personnel. It's not just about the potential for direct harm, but also about the long-term implications for those involved. You're spot on, Linda. It does make me think of that old saying, the devil is in the details. In this case, the detail being a simple domain typo. And you know, it's not the first time we've seen this. Remember back in 2016, the DNC email leak? That was traced back to a phishing scam that capitalized on a similar kind of typo. It's a real wake-up call, not just for the military, but for anyone dealing with sensitive information online. It's a clear demonstration of how even the smallest detail can have far-reaching implications. And this begs the question, how do we prevent something like this from happening again? It's not enough to remind people to double-check their emails. We need more sophisticated measures in place, like domain validation and typo detection systems. Yeah, it's like we're in a tightrope walk between relying on human vigilance and automated systems. But let's face it, even the most cautious person can make a typo. And even the most sophisticated systems have their blind spots. It's a tough nut to crack, but one we can't afford to ignore. Story number two. Chinese property giant Evergrande has reported a combined loss of $81.1 billion in 2021 and 2022, as stated by the BBC. The company, which defaulted on its debts last year, disclosed its long-overdue earnings to investors in Hong Kong. Evergrande has been struggling with approximately $300 billion of debt and has experienced significant losses due to the property market crisis in China. The firm attributed the losses to factors such as declining property values, higher borrowing costs, and reduced revenue. 
Shares in Evergrande have been suspended from trading since March 2021. The company's financial troubles have had a ripple effect on China's real estate industry, with other developers also defaulting on their debts and leaving unfinished projects across the country. Earlier this year, Evergrande announced plans to restructure around $20 billion of overseas debt. Are we witnessing yet another financial domino effect here, Linda? It's hard not to see some parallels between Evergrande's crisis and the U.S. housing market crash back in 2008. The aggressive expansion, the excessive borrowing, the inflated property values, it's like deja vu. I see where you're coming from, Mark. But it's also important to take into account the unique circumstances that led to Evergrande's downfall. The Chinese government's introduction of new rules in 2020 to limit the amount that big real estate firms could borrow was a significant factor. It's a prime example of how macroeconomic policies can have a profound impact on individual businesses. That's a key point. The broader implications are staggering, though. With Evergrande's financial issues rippling through China's property industry, we're seeing a series of developers defaulting on their debts and leaving unfinished building projects. It's a mess. The aftershocks of this could be felt globally, considering China's position in the world economy. True, Mark. The international community is, no doubt, watching with a wary eye. Evergrande's defaults on international loans add an additional layer of complexity. And let's not forget, it's not just about economic implications. There are social repercussions, too, with people who've invested their life savings in properties that now risk becoming ghost buildings. Spot on, Linda. It's a complex issue with far-reaching effects, and it's concerning how quickly things turn sour for Everg. Evergrande. One moment they're a top-selling property developer, the next they're grappling with a financial crisis. It goes to show, no matter how big a company is, risky financial practices can bring it to its knees. It's a sobering reminder, Mark. Moving forward, it's critical for businesses, governments, and regulators to learn from this crisis. Sustainable and ethical business practices, effective government policies and regulations, and increased transparency and accountability are more important than ever. Then. Story number three. According to Al Jazeera, Ukraine's Air Force has reported that Russia has launched air attacks on targets in southern and eastern Ukraine using drones and potentially ballistic missiles. The regions of Odessa, Mykolaiv, Donetsk, Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Dnipropetrovsk are under threat of drone attacks. A fire broke out in the port city of Mykolaiv, and video footage circulating on social media allegedly shows Iranian-made drones attacking targets in the Mykolaiv region. Air defense systems in the Odessa region are engaged in repelling Russian drone attacks, and there are concerns that Russia may also be using ballistic weaponry to attack other regions. Air raid alerts were sounded in multiple Ukrainian regions, and the attack on the Odessa region occurred after Russia refused to extend a deal allowing the safe export of Ukrainian grain from Black Sea ports. Why, the situation in Ukraine is getting more tense by the day, ain't it? Russia's use of drones and possibly ballistic missiles for air attacks is a stark reminder of how technology is changing the face of warfare. It's not just boots on the ground anymore. It's a deeply troubling development. This isn't the first time we've seen technology used in this manner. The U.S., for instance, has utilized drone warfare extensively in the Middle East. However, the ethical implications of such tactics are complex and, frankly, quite concerning. It's like, you know... A double-edged sword. On one hand, drones can reduce the risk to military personnel. But on the other hand, the risk of collateral damage and civilian casualties is high. There's also the issue of accountability. 
Who's answerable when things go wrong? The drone operator sitting thousands of miles away? That's a valid point, Mark. And it's not just about the immediate impact of these attacks. We must also consider how such technologies are changing defense strategies. Ukraine's response to these attacks is a case in point. Ensuring effective air defense has become a crucial aspect of their strategy. Right you are, Linda. It's like a cat and mouse game, isn't it? As offensive technologies evolve, so too must defensive ones. Now, aside from this, there's also the issue of Russia's blockade of Ukraine's Black Sea ports. That's a different kind of warfare altogether. Economic warfare. It shows how warfare isn't just about military might. It's also about crippling a country's economy, disrupting their supply chains, and creating a state of instability. It's a multifaceted issue, and we need to acknowledge all aspects of it. And, you know, it's a real shame. The impact on the ordinary folks, the ones caught in the crossfire, is devastating. Looks like the road to peace is going to be a long and difficult one. In the end, it's always the common people who bear the brunt of these conflicts. It's a sobering thought, and one that underscores the urgency of finding a peaceful resolution to this crisis. Story number four. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has embarked on a three-state Gulf tour, starting with Saudi Arabia, in an effort to attract foreign investment and boost Turkey's struggling economy, as reported by Al Jazeera. Erdogan will also visit the United Arab Emirates and Qatar during his tour. The primary agenda of the visits is joint investment and commercial activities with these countries. This visit marks Erdogan's second trip to Saudi Arabia since the strained ties caused by the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. The visit comes as Turkey faces a currency collapse and soaring inflation. The Gulf country's growing interest in investing in Turkey is seen as a boost for the country's economic problems. Erdogan's visit to Qatar is expected to enhance cooperation and expand investments between the two countries. How about that? Erdogan's on a Gulf tour, Linda. Looks like he's really trying to drum up some foreign investment for Turkey. Yes, Mark. It's a strategic move on his part. Erdogan is trying to navigate through Turkey's current economic crisis, characterized by a currency collapse and soaring inflation. By fostering relationships with Gulf countries, He's hoping to stimulate foreign investment and boost economic recovery. Right. And with these business forums in Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar, there's some serious networking going on. Do you think this could significantly impact the two-way trade between Turkey and these Gulf countries? There's definitely potential, Mark. Erdogan himself mentioned that two-way trade with Gulf countries has skyrocketed from $1.6 billion to about $22 billion over the past 20 years. If these forums result in solid investment agreements, it could push this figure even further. Let's touch on the elephant in the room. The Khashoggi incident. How does that factor into this whole diplomatic dance? I mean, Turkey was pretty vocal about that. That's a key point, Mark. The Khashoggi incident did put a strain on Saudi-Turkish relations. However, diplomacy has been at work to mend this rift. Erdogan's visit to Saudi Arabia in April 2022, Prince Mohammed's trip to Turkey later, and now this tour reflect an effort to rebuild ties for mutual benefit. And then there's Qatar. They seem pretty positive about the whole thing, eh? Yes. Qatar's ambassador to Turkey indicated that Erdogan's visit would boost cooperation. This could mean expanding investments between the two countries, which would be a win-win scenario. Qatar's interest in investing in diverse sectors could help Turkey increase its exports, easing its economic problems. So it all boils down to economics and diplomacy. 
Work hard and play nice, I guess. Let's see how this plays out for Turkey. It's a complex and delicate balance, but if successful, could herald a new era of economic recovery for Turkey and potentially reshape its relations with Gulf countries. Story number five. Japanese employees have experienced weak wage growth for over three decades, earning only three quarters as much as their developed country peers. The stagnant wage growth is attributed to factors such as economic stagnation, low labor productivity, a shrinking population, and controversial policy decisions. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has pledged to prioritize tackling stagnating wages and has called for pay hikes and labor market reforms. While some companies have responded with pay increases, inflation has offset these gains, leading to a decline in real wages. Small and medium-sized enterprises struggle to offer higher wages due to customer unwillingness to pay more. Major reforms, including easier hiring and firing processes, are needed to spur wage growth. Digitization and increasing productivity are seen as potential solutions, but cultural changes are necessary to support these shifts. According to Al Jazeera, the source of this news, the Japanese government and businesses are facing challenges in addressing the issue of weak wage growth. Has it ever struck you as odd, Linda, that Japan, as one of the world's largest and most advanced economies, has such a chronic issue with wage stagnation? I mean, according to this Al Jazeera report, average Japanese workers earned about the same in 2022 as they did in 1991. That's over 30 years of virtually no wage growth. Yes, it's quite a conundrum, Mark. You would expect a nation as technologically advanced and industrious as Japan to have a burgeoning middle class, but that's not the case. The wage stagnation has been attributed to a multitude of factors such as the bursting of the asset bubble in the 1990s, a strong yen, low labor productivity, and even controversial policy decisions. That's quite a cocktail of economic challenges. But what about the role of employers in this? Prime Minister Kishida seems to think they're not doing enough to distribute corporate profits to their workers. Well, Mark, it's a complex issue. While larger corporations may indeed have room to increase wages, Small and medium enterprises often operate on slim margins and may struggle to increase pay. However, it's worth noting that this year's wage hikes, the largest since 93, are seen by some economists as a temporary event, unlikely to trigger a long-term trend. Another interesting point in the article was about how the digitization of the economy might affect wages. The idea being that companies would be willing to pay more for young, digitally savvy employees, potentially at the expense of older, less tech-savvy workers. Yes, Mark. The digital transformation is indeed a double-edged sword. On one hand, it can boost productivity and potentially wages for those with the right skills. On the other, it could exacerbate wage disparities between different generations of workers. It's a delicate balancing act that requires careful policy planning and execution. It's certainly a tough nut to crack. But it's comforting to see that the issue is being taken seriously and steps are being taken to address it. Let's hope for a future where everyone gets their fair share of the pie. It's a complex issue with no easy solutions, but one that requires constant attention and thoughtful action. After all, a strong and equitable economy benefits everyone. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.